All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. <clears throat> just before uh, jumping into it, just want to remind you that this week we will be uh, doing some follow-up with the membership series. And so for um, folks who aren't members uh, or who are... <laughs> Uh, we'll be sending out some kind of instructions and direction for you uh, so that by kind of the end of this year, beginning of the new year, we'll, we'll have an idea where folks kind of stand in terms of their membership and their kind of agreement to jumping in to the, the vision and direction of Mercy Gate Church. And so you can expect some of that information coming out this, this week. Uh, also then, uh, just after our time here, uh, we're going to be doing uh, a grief share, and so we'll be finishing up here and pretty quickly transitioning to setting this space up for a handful of folks um, from the neighborhood as well as folks from uh, our, our church family to participate in that. So keep that in prayer. That's a great opportunity uh, that we're looking at this afternoon. Uh, as you know, we are in the Advent series, and so we're, we're starting then um, a new series uh, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 that we are calling Come Lord Jesus. Uh, if you're not aware, Advent simply comes from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming, right? So uh, Advent refers to then biblically Jesus' first coming and his then second coming. Right? And oftentimes during the Christmas season, we give our attention to the babe in the manger and all the sentimentality that is there. And that's right and true. And as Christians, we should look back to the first coming of Christ and all that he accomplished there and celebrate it and apply it to our lives. As well, then, when we think about Advent, we should be looking at the return of Christ. Right? And all the preparation that we should be giving our attention to in terms of seeing his return happen. And so that's the aim then of this series. We've called it Come Lord Jesus. It's actually a phrase from the end of Revelation where it's uh, church history is pushed forward by the worthy one who, is, uh, who, who alone is worthy to open up the seals as it comes to the end then of redemptive history, we see the marriage feast, we see all things made new, and then Jesus says at the very end, he says, I'm coming soon. And the spirit and the bride say, amen, come Lord Jesus. And that is a statement, I should remind you, that is a statement that doesn't necessarily come from Oh, thank heavens, he's taken us out of this hellhole that we're in. That is a statement of like a lovesick bride. Yes, it involves, oh, he's bringing peace to the world, and that is amazing. But we finally get to have Jesus face to face. I remember those dating days with my wife, right? Long distance. It was one thing to talk on the phone. It was one thing to know her presence that way. But it was a whole other thing to see her face to face. And it was a whole other thing than on the wedding day, right? 
to see her arrayed in white and coming down the aisle. That's, that's the lovesick cry of the church. Jesus, oh, we can't wait. We can't wait to have you. We can't wait to see you face to face. Behold your glory in, in all of its beauty and for all eternity to know just the pleasure of your presence unhindered by any kind of sin whatsoever. That, this is why we cry out, oh, come, Lord Jesus. It's not just take me out of the tough stuff. He's, he's not just a get out of hell card, you know, in our hands. He's, he's far more than that. He is glory. He is beauty. He is life and in life and abundance. And for that, we cry, Lord, I just want all of you. I want as much as you as I can get. And since you've promised your return, so we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It is a lovesick cry from the church. Now, part of then, uh, part of then preparing for the second coming of Christ, part of preparing to see that come Lord Jesus fulfilled is seen in Matthew 24 and 25. It's literally a text that, man, has a ton of confusion around it because it speaks of the end times. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think it's supposed, it's not supposed to leave us with confusion as it should leave us with a greater love for Jesus and an, an, an eager expectation for his return. So, let's jump into Matthew 24. Uh, I want to read with you uh, right now verses 32 through 35, but we're going to be referencing some of those earlier passages from Matthew 24, verses 1 and following. So, look at verse 32. We'll read this together, and then we'll jump into it. Matthew 24, 32, Jesus says, From the fig tree, he says, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that what is near? Oh, summer's near. Some of you shore people, you know, you love that beach, right? Through winter, you're just, can't wait for summer, can't wait for summer. You know then that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, and you should be saying, okay, well, what things? All right, we'll get to that. You know that some of your versions may say, it is near, or some of your versions may say, he is near. At the very gates. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things, there's that all these things thing again, all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right, there's something to depend upon there, his words. Now, uh, just this past week, uh, I listened to a sermon actually related to this whole text, like the whole chapter of Matthew 24, and the pastor began by recounting kind of the, the headline news of the previous year. And so he talked about all the natural disasters that had taken place and all the war and political upheaval that had taken place, even persecution of Christians throughout the world that had taken place that year. And then he says this, hasn't 2015 been such a crazy year? And I just thought, oh, man. Just wait till 2020, at least, right? 
uh, man, then you're going to see crazy, right? You're going you're gonna to get hammered and hammered hard. But the guy's not wrong, is he? 2015 had its lumps. 2020 definitely had its lumps, right? As we look then to 2023, will this be the turnaround year? Will, be, will this be the year where uh, we catch a little bit of relief? And at least from Matthew 24, we'd have to recognize, nope, probably not. 2023 probably will not be marked with relief. And the question then is, okay, well, how do we know that? And secondly, then, how are we to rightly live through it? Those are the answers that Jesus provides for us in Matthew 24. So let's dive into it, gain some kind of clarity on what's going on. As we approach the text, Matthew 24, Jesus, he's entered his Passion Week. You know what Passion Week is? It's the week just before Jesus goes to that cross and dies. So Jesus, at this point, Matthew 24, he's entered Jerusalem on that donkey. He's flipped the temple tables, right? He's openly debated and then condemned the religious leaders of the day. They now want very much to kill Jesus, and by week's end, they'll succeed. It's a very tense time. But just before those events unfold, Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives and gives this teaching to his disciples. This teaching is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, right? Now, you got to be careful when you read the Olivet Discourse. Why? Well, Jesus is putting on his prophet hat, right? He's putting on his prophet. He's speaking as a prophet so that, similar to what we recognize when we studied through the book of Revelation, there's going to be some hard things to understand. Our kind of American Western mind doesn't always jive with what would have been kind of the ancient Jewish mindset, especially when it comes to prophetic or apocalyptic teaching. This teaching, we could say it this way, is a certain genre. It's a certain way of communicating that will oftentimes use Old Testament ideas to describe near and far future events, but without giving you a clear chronology. You and I, in our minds, we, we want A, B, C, give me the direction, give me the distance, give me the timeline. That's not the way the prophets would speak. They would speak very different. You could go to the Old Testament. You could look at Isaiah. Isaiah is going to talk about the day of the Lord, for instance. And he's going to talk about the day of the Lord being right there and then. And he's going to talk about it being a bit future. And then he's going to talk about it being way out there someday. Globally, it's going to happen, the day of the Lord. And so when the prophet speaks, the chronology of things can easily uh, get mixed up. It's like the prophet, if I could say it this way, he, he's one who stands kind of on an aerial outlook of a valley. Right? And as he looks across the valley, he's going to see, oh yeah, that, that hill and this hill and this hill and that hill. And oh, and then there's the other side of the valley. There's the big ultimate moment. There's the big ultimate mountain. And so what he will do as he looks across the valley is to reaccount certain situations. That hill is going to be kind of like this hill, and then he'll back up and say, which will be kind of like this hill, which will actually be kind of like the ultimate hill, the big hill, 
right, the ultimate event of human history. He's looking across the valley of human history, and it's not always chronologically in order. I say that because if you choose to read through Matthew 24 uh, this week, you're going to see that, like, man, when's this happening, and when's that happening, and how does this work? But he, Jesus has his prophet hat on. So he's going to be looking far, he's going to be looking near, he's going to be looking to the ultimate day, and you have to kind of work through it to see exactly what Jesus is talking about. So, Jesus is talking as a prophet. Don't get confused. It's okay. We'll try to bring some simplicity to it as we go. So let's get into it. Matthew 24. Uh, let's go back to verse 1, just to understand where he's going by the time he gets to verse 32. Following. In verse 1, Jesus and his disciples leave the temple, and the disciples are intrigued by just how big the temple is. Is right, it's Herod's temple in that day, and they're just like, Wow, this thing is monstrous. In fact, there may be, uh, Kev on the slides, there may be a picture of Herod's temple. Uh, and and this, this is a monstrosity, right? Built with incredible, huge stones and, and whatnot. And, and so they, they have just kind of left the temple, the disciples are amazed by it. And they reference that to Jesus. And in verse 2, then Jesus says, you see all these things? And, and by all things, he means the stones of this temple. Do you, do you see all these things? Do you, do you see the temple? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus is saying, there's going to come a day, a terrible day. There's the temple. And it's actually coming from the view of the Mount of Olives where Jesus and his disciples are standing. That, that would have been their view at the time where Jesus is teaching. right? And Jesus is saying, it's that temple. Every stone in that thing is going to be torn down. There's not going to be left one stone standing. The disciples have just said, oh, man, that's incredible. It, it is massive. Those guys got to see kind of exactly the, the immensity of those stones. Um, but it's incredible, incredible uh, architecture. It's incredible uh, size of it all. I mean, to see a person in that, there would just be a tiny piece of pepper, you know, put into the courtroom or the courtyard there. And so this is what the discussion originally is. Uh, it would be a startling moment for the disciples to think that that temple is going to be torn down. That's like the center of all Jewish activity and thought and life, all right? And Jesus says, yep, it's all coming down one day. So then they walk up to the Mount of Olives, where that perspective is kind of giving you, right? Mount of Olives, which overlooked the temple. And in verse 3, the disciples came to Jesus privately, and they say, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, just to kind of clarify, how many questions has Jesus been asked? How many questions there? A lot of questions. All right. He's been asked, when will the temple, when will these things, when will these things, those stones, tumble down? All right. When will the temple be destroyed? Question one. And... What will be the signs of his return? All right, so two questions, really, that Jesus is asked. 
Two questions that as Saul, or, uh, Matthew 24 continues to go on, that's the answer to these questions, right? Now, I want to just answer the questions with you very bluntly first before getting into uh, the actual text, verse 32 and following. So, <clears throat> when will the destruction of the temple take place? Look at verse 34. All right, so back to that text that we just read, verse 34. He says, truly to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All right, so when will the destruction of the temple take place? In about a what? I know some of you are like, that's not my eschatology. Just, just roll with me. I know we may have different perspectives. All right, in a generation, right? And how, how many years is a typical generation? Well, think about uh, the Exodus account, for instance. How many years in the wilderness, right? A generation had to die off. 40 years, all right? So you're going to have 40 years. So Jesus is saying, in roughly 40 years, you're going to see every stone fall. Well, you look at history. In 70 AD, what happened? Titus. Titus comes in. And I think there's another picture of actually, you know, they didn't have photographs, so what do they do? They etch it into stone. And there they are. Titus the Roman comes in, conquers uh, Jerusalem, and the stones fall. Right? And what happens, and that, that's a picture, they're taking all the stuff of the temple, the menorah. There it is. <laughs> they're, 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 they're taking it out of there. Right? So Jesus says, yep, the stones are going to fall in about a generation. Okay? But then Jesus goes on. Um, I'm going to skip some stuff. Question two. What are the signs of his return then? Right? That more so is answered throughout the chapter, but it's specifically then answered in verse 36. Look at verse 36. Like, what are the signs of you're going to return going to be? Or more specifically, he answers it. When are you going to come back? And what's the answer? No one knows. Hank, or... Uh, Harold Camping, you know, it, nobody knows the time of Christ's return. Nobody knows. In fact, not even the angels, not even the Son of Man, but only the Father. So the destruction of the temple, you could say, okay, about 40 years, this stuff is going to happen. The, uh, the coming of Christ is a big question mark, but what Jesus gives us is the signs. Oh, the signs of the times, right? And amidst all of what then Jesus goes on to say, couched in the answers to that question of what are the signs of Christ's coming, is what we just read, verse 32, a lesson to be learned. Okay, verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. Je Jesus is going to give us the signs and give us a lesson, right? And to learn a lesson, then, it is something that requires time and effort. The idea is something of an ongoing experience that I have to ongoingly learn from so that I might grow. So Jesus isn't speaking of just like, you need to have this information in your head, but this is going to be an ongoing lesson learned 
for you, right? As Jesus goes on then, so the question then is, what is the lesson? This is going to be an ongoing lesson to be learned, but what is the lesson? Verse 32, as soon as the fig tree's branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, just to give you a little context, in this area of Jerusalem, fig trees often stood against the, the evergreen trees, so especially in the winter time, you know, when fig trees during the summer have these massive leaves, in the winter time, they would have looked practically dead against the evergreen trees, right? It would just be the branches, look pretty awful during the winter, right? But he's saying, be observant, consider it, right? Because... Oh, when the branches get soft, the little buds turn green so that the little leaves begin to shoot out, then you know that summer is near. The pains of winter, in other words, will have its end. Yes, right? So verse 33, so also, he's now applying the imagery, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Summer's coming. Jesus is arriving. The bridegroom is showing up. But the question that still remains is, well, when we see all what things? What are the signs? What are the things that should be showing us that Jesus is imminent? He's close to coming. Now, I'll say this as a caveat. The signs of the times are not for conspiracy theory. The signs of the times are not intended to provoke fear in you, as we will see. The signs of the times are not some complex reality. It's actually a very simple reality, which I want to show you. So what are the signs of the times, right? What are the signs that summer is near and winter is almost over? Let's go back to verse 4. What is Jesus talking about? What is he saying? Verse 4. And Jesus said to them, see that no one takes you astray. All right, so in the coming days, there's going to be attempts made upon you, Christian, disciple of Jesus, to lead you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many, what? Astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is what? Not yet. yet. Summer ain't quite here, but you'll see these signs. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be a famine, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the what? beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You will be hated by how many nations? <laughs> For my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. 
then the end will come. All right, so recap, right? Just want your head to get in the text. In verses 4 and 5, there will be, in the end times, spiritual deception. In the end times, verses 6 and 7, there will be political unrest. There will be, verse 7, natural unrest, earthquakes and famines. There will be global persecution and martyrdom against the church in verse 9. There will be betrayal and deception from within the church, verse 10. Lawlessness and lack of love will characterize many, verse 12. But, verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will go to the ends of the earth. Incredible, right? Now, if we look at the book of Acts, for instance, we'll save time by not going there. But if we did, if we look at the book of Acts, which is about a 40-year period, we see that in a generation, these things happen. There's all kinds of unrest, political unrest, natural unrest. There's all kinds of persecution that takes place. But what happens to the gospel of the kingdom? It goes where? From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. By, by the time you get to Acts 28, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. The known world. The gospel has gone to the known world, right? So in a generation, these things have taken place in some sense. But remember, it's just the beginning. It's just the first round of the birth pains. And so what will happen? Well, over time, we're going to see more of this happen in an intensified way so that even when it comes to seeing the gospel going to the ends of the earth, Romans chapter 11 will give us further hints to what will happen. The fullness of the Gentiles, that's the nations, must come to faith in Christ. But that's going to be so that it provokes jealousy in the Jews who then will come to Christ. Right? So there is a lot of saving to be done, in other words, throughout the world. The mission, so to speak, is going to continue amidst all the chaos, the craziness, the difficulty. Oh, the mission of Christ will continue. What we find in Acts is only something that we'll continue to see throughout the world in kind of intensified ways. Remember that Jesus is using his prophetic hat. So he's going to be saying, okay, yep, in a generation things are going to happen, but that doesn't mean that's the end of it. It's but the birth pains. It's this situation's going to kind of be like this situation. What's going to be like this and that? And eventually there's going to be intensification of things before the coming of Christ, before summer actually comes. It's the beginning of these things. That, here's your two signs, right? For all, for, for the conspiracy theorist in us, this like kills the conspiracy theorist in us. He, here's the signs. There is going to be unrest. Life ain't gonna be easy. No joke is what you'd say to that. No, duh, like, it's not easy. But also, just to use an R word, 
you're going to have unrest and revival. You're going to have hardship, but incredible things happening in and through the church. You're going to have, yes, persecution, but incredible advancements of the kingdom. You're going to have this again and again in intensifying ways throughout the world. It's, it's kind of like if you, if you think of a timeline, the unrest is going to get bigger and bigger and intensify and intensify and intensify in some sense until Christ comes back. But through all the intensification of unrest, you're going to also have this crimson uh, line of grace that flows through it all to see, yes, the gospel continue to bear fruit and go to the nations and go to the nations and go to the nations. Do you see? Will 2023 be hard? Yep, yep, it's going to be hard. But what can we count on? The faithfulness of the risen Christ who has ascended on high, ruling over all things, advancing his mission forward through his church. There's the signs of the times. Right? Not weird, not complicated, very simple. There's going to be unrest, but there will be revival. Okay? Now, these are the signs unrest and revival. So what are the implications? Like, Jesus said to learn the lesson. Okay, so okay, so those are the signs, but how are we supposed to learn the lesson from these signs? What are we supposed to apply to ourselves? First, yes, there will be an intensifying turmoil and unrest to expect in the world, and, and that unrest and that turmoil won't just be felt by circumstances outside the church, but as... Jesus has said it's going to be in the church. The church will suffer from within at times. But again, you can also expect wonderful advancements of the gospel through the church. The church will suffer, but listen, the church will triumph. It will come to a point of exasperation at times. The church will perhaps even fall in felt defeat but it will rise again. Just chapters earlier, Matthew uh, 16, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. In other words, he's saying in that context, I'm going to build my church atop the very jaws of hell itself. Upon the very gateway into the underworld, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church in the very grip of hell's affliction, so even when then she is exasperated, seemingly defeated by hell, she will, if we could say, even like Lazarus, come forth in glory. She will prevail. She will suffer turmoil, yes. And she'll suffer it again and again and again and again. But she will triumph again and again and again and again. Folks, the church is the only entity on planet Earth that will triumph. Do you get it? Who's going to survive winter? The church. And in a sense, she will not only survive, she will thrive through it. And she will inevitably be brought into the blessing of summer, into the arms of her beloved. 
So the fundamental application to these signs, folks, is to be given to the church. Be given to what Christ is doing in and through his church. Be given to the relationships of the church. Be given to the mission of the church. It is the church that will triumph. So be given to the church. Learn the lesson from the fig tree. Be given to the church. It's the only entity on planet Earth that will survive winter. Second, then, second implication is be given to the word of Christ. In verse 6, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. In other words, don't be given to fear. Don't be given to the world's solutions. Don't be given to the agenda, the worldly wisdom of of, of our culture. This, This is what Jesus previously would refer to as the leaven of Herod. Don't be given to just the political solutions of your day. Don't be alarmed. Don't be given to fear. Verse 4, don't be led astray. That is, don't be given to the crooked deception of man-made religion. Right? It's, it's the leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus would talk about in earlier texts. But be given to, verse 35, the one whose word does not wear out. Look at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus says, my word will not pass away. The headlines are going to come and they will go. The world will provide its solutions and they will have to look for new solutions. Politicians will say, this is what you need, this is what you need, this is what you need, again and again and again. And they will have to say it again and again and again. They're the only words that will last are Jesus' words. His solutions will last. Jesus' words, as he's saying here, are more durable than the very foundations of heaven and earth itself. That's what he said. The fabric of heaven and earth will wear out, but his word is unfading. So the point is, don't be given to the fear-mongering agendas of our day. Don't be given to the crooked kind of religious agendas of our day. Don't give your life to what is that sinking sand. Be given to Christ. Be given to his unfailing word. And I have to say it this way. Don't think of being given to his word as I just have to know more. The whole point of knowing is so that you would be apprehending who he is in relationship to him. He's given us his word so that we might not just know about him, but know him. His word is that which connects us relationally, gives us life. It's the bread of life for our daily experiences here on earth. And it's not only our daily, <clears throat> our daily life, but Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. How will the church overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So 
the word that gives me daily life and engagement with the king of glory then becomes now a testimony. It's a word. He's real. He's active. He's come through for me. He's satisfied my life. Here's the word of my testimony. Christ in him crucified, risen again, and now he's everything for me. I'm covered in his blood, and I have feasted on his word. I know it, and therefore I will prevail. I will overcome. This is how the church survives winter. We must be given to his word. Be given to the church. Be given to his word. But then third, the signs of summer reveal, verse 33, that he is near. He stands at the gates. Now that's a weird expression, like what gates? What are you talking about, right? To stand at the gates is an image of a judge who is shaking the doors of the courtroom with zeal. He's ready to establish his court. He is eager to execute his justice for every affliction his bride has suffered. I'm just thinking of this now. But for Jody and I, we have a zeal, a burning zeal within. Oh, we'd shake, we'd, we'd shake the gates of the courtroom if we could, right? To see justice for Bari established. Like, let's stop the waiting. Let's get there. But it's because there's such love. There's such engagement. If I didn't know Bar, like... It'd just be another statistic, unfortunately. Now we, we know him. We love him. Love is invested. And as love is invested, now it's like, I want, I want to do everything in my power, even shake the gates of that courtroom to see justice brought to him. Because Christ loves you and knows everything you have suffered, Every affliction that has come against you, every loss that you've experienced, every hurt that you carry, he knows it. He's not ambivalent to it. He's not sitting back, well, you know, you just got to wait until I come again and hopefully you'll feel some sort of resolution. He is eager. He loves you. He cares about your deepest hurts. So take that as a world of comfort for your soul. But also, I'm going to also kind of work from the opposite side of the same coin. Because many Christians will miss out on kingdom opportunities because they are immobilized by their own personal hurts. You need to know he loves you. You need to know he loves you, but you also need to know that he is near. He is standing at the gates, that he sees you, he knows you, he's taking meticulous account of all injustice. And one day, yes, the gates will swing wide, the courtroom will be established, the king will stand to execute perfect justice for every affliction his bride has suffered. So then, don't let what only God can do for you then get in the way of what only you can do for God now. 
Don't let what only God can do for you then bring justice to every kind of meticulous aspect of your hurt. Don't let what only God can do for you then get in the way of what only you can do for God now. Now. To experience unrest, to experience affliction, to experience betrayal, loss, is the signs that summer is near, that he's near. To not have those things is to actually know that he's not close. But to have felt all that you have felt is the signs winter is coming to a close. Jesus is near. He's standing at the door. Justice is coming, and it's coming swiftly. So, in summary, this then is the effect that end times talk should have upon us. It shouldn't lead us into uh, debate about timelines and flowcharts and conspiracy theories. It shouldn't cause us to sit back in our chairs, doom and gloom, and oh no, you know, another year of great turmoil. For if I'm seeing unrest, I can be certain there is kingdom opportunity to be realized. If unrest continues, so does revival. These are the signs of the times. So we give ourselves, again, to the church, the one entity in this world that will triumph. We give ourselves to the word of Christ, our relationship with him, and we give ourselves to the justice that he will soon supply us. Now I think this emphasis, these signs, are actually repeated in verses 15 through 31. There is some weeds that we would have to get into, uh, and we don't have the time to deal with those texts this morning. We'd have to go to Old Testament and then come to New Testament and go back and forth and back and forth to gain some clarity. But I do believe what Jesus then just reiterates in verse 15 through following is the same reality. If there is unrest, there will be revival. If there is unrest, there will be revival. So church, learn your lesson from the fig tree, right? Learn it from the fig tree. These are the signs that we know all too well. So let's be given to the church. Let's be given to the word of Christ. Let's be given to the justice that he will one day supply. One final thought. As Jesus finishes the Olivet Discourse, He's going to retreat to Bethany to sit at the uh, house of Simon the leper. He will get one short reprieve before then turning to the upper room, to then heading into the garden, to then being given over, placed on trial. And so we see tribulation at play. He says all of this with the cross in view. He says all of this as the one who says, ain't no one can take my life, <laughs> but I willingly lay it down. And I willingly take it up again. 
and it's the cross and the resurrection, and then the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father that demonstrates that he has authority, Matthew 28, right? Matthew 28, 20, he has authority over all things. Isn't that what he said to his disciples? I've been given authority over all things. Therefore, what are you supposed to do? Go make disciples. Get busy with the mission. Get to work. You, you are my representatives on earth. So with the resurrected and ascended Christ, there is much hope for the church. It's not easy. It's hard. There are things even this morning, I'll just be straight, that are not easy. <laughs> they are hard. And it's not even the things that are happening out here. It's the things that were happening in here. They're hard. But our Savior has died, he's been raised, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Amen. So that in every difficulty, in every difficulty, there is grace to triumph. There is grace to triumph. Now, whether or not we take advantage of that grace is a whole other thing. Whether or not we learn our lesson from the fig tree is a whole other thing. And so like Jesus says to his disciples, learn the lesson. Learn the lesson. And hear it coming from the voice, not of a pastor. Hear it coming from the voice of your resurrected and ascended Lord and Savior. Learn your lesson from the fig tree. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, um, for the fact that you don't call us into some kind of naive approach to the future. Thank you that you don't call us to, to walk as those who just have kind of plastic smiles on our faces. Thank you, Jesus, that you would say, yeah, things are going to get rough. So you say to your disciples, even John 16, in this world you will face tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We thank you, Lord, that you have overcome. You are now exalted and seated on high. And you will bring your church through winter. You will bring us through, yes, through difficulty, yes, through turmoil. But you will bring us through in a way in which we have the right to have smiles on our faces. We have the right then, even when we feel like we're down, to share that gospel truth with others. And according to your promises, Folks will respond. There will be a response of faith. More to come in to the fullness of the Gentiles. More to come in. More revive, More advancement to be seen. So, Ascended Lord, we pray that you would make us into a church that has learned the lesson. Who leans into what you've made us to be as the church. 
who leans into your word and says, oh, we must hunger and thirst for the King of Kings. We must be quenched by the fountainhead himself. We must be satisfied in the bread of life. And then, Lord, for every injustice or hurt that we experience along the way, would you give us the grace to place those at your feet as the one who is near, who is pounding on the gates of the courtroom, eager to come in and make just every injustice that we experience. Jesus, you've been so kind, and we can count on the rest of the day you being kind again, and tomorrow, mercies again. <laughs> Thank you for your kind rule and reign over us. In your kindness, Lord, again, help us to learn that lesson. Hold our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Revelation 21. It says, He who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Grace and peace to you guys. We're just going to